This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lauren. And we like to say those things in a very punchy manner. Yes. And we do little shoulder movements. Little you can't shimmy. See. Little shimmies. Shimmy, shimmy, shimmies. Shimmy and a shake. Because you know what's exciting about those oh, four categories? It's so exciting. So exciting. Today we're going to mythology of the four. So mythology today is taking us to a realm which, as Lauren mentioned at the end of our last episode, is the first deviant woman that Lauren pitched to me for this whole podcast. It is. She was the original deviant woman, the first deviant woman, and we have been wanting to get to her story since we began. And I don't know, honestly, why we haven't. Because, I don't know why. Be, Maybe it's because she seems too obvious. And also because there's just so much to talk about yeah. with her. And also maybe because we were waiting to have the opportunity to bring on a special yes. guest. We got to chat with Liv from the podcast Let's, Let's talk, talk About Myths, baby. baby. And you have to say it like that. <laughs> and so we got to have her input in this story as well. And, and I think that was actually probably good for us because it kind of maybe helped us to be structured and not just I have this as a giant Medea rant because like important and outside influence to keep us under control yes and it's and she's an interesting one as well um in thinking about some of the episodes that we've had earlier in this season and how her mythology has some parallels to some of the figures that we've seen yes like La Llorona yeah very much like La Llorona who is a figure that is often sort of aligned to Mm -hmm. Medea in a very Eurocentric very very Eurocentric yeah. fashion but it does bring us back to this idea of the monstrous woman <gasps> what does a woman do to make her so terribly monstrous in this yeah, society that's right. and is she justified mm. in her anger so let us go now to ancient Greece shall we miss of time and welcome our friend Liv to this discussion of our favorite Medea <laughs> So, of course, we are lucky enough to be joined by Liv from Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And (laughs) sorry, we had to do that. We had to do that. You must get that all the time. I do, and I hate singing it myself, so it's really nice when other people do. (laughs) Well, would you like to just give our listeners here at Deviant Women a little bit of a spiel about what it is you do over in your podcast? Yes, absolutely. Well, my podcast, as you sang it, is Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, which I sometimes question the title of. (laughs) No, don't do that. It's great. (laughs) It's just me uh, telling stories from mythology, but in a way that I like to think is pretty accessible and quite feminist and I swear a lot yeah good very much in the same kind of yeah vague vibe then yeah as what we kindred do. spirits yeah I would absolutely say. <laughs> I was listening to you guys and I was like oh yeah we could definitely be friends <laughs> <laughs> that's always good that's always good uh maybe Liv you'd like to sort of kick us off by perhaps introducing us to where it all begins with Medea 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 tomato tomato yeah We've been through this conversation, but uh, where it all starts, where does she arise in mythology for us? Absolutely. She's got an incredible story. Her parentage is 
a little bit debated. So, but she's always the daughter of Aetes, who is the son of Helios. So he's kind of a god himself, and that sort of gives Medea a little bit of extra um, magic in her. But basically, she starts out as just a princess, and well, I shouldn't say just a princess. Just, just, she's just, a, just, a, just an average princess. <laughs> she's a magical princess to to start, yeah. <laughs> and a man named Jason arrives on the shores mm. of her father's land. And is there to steal a golden fleece. Oh, Jason. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. He is something <laughs> else. We'll get into that. But she threw sometimes a love potion, sometimes not. I'd like to think it's a love potion and she would have known better. But she falls <laughs> for Jason and kills a couple of people. I'm going to forget a bit of the chronology with how many people she kills and when. But essentially there are a few deaths and she helps Jason steal the golden fleece and get away from her father. So when Jason arrives on the shore, like you said, she's maybe under a love potion or maybe is it Eros as well, perhaps who may well have shot a a love arrow into her heart. Yeah. Yeah, We also get that version of the story. So yeah, there's definitely, there's often those versions, those suggestions that she is influenced by the gods in some way or another to fall madly deeply in love with Jason. And you covered the story of Jason and the Argonauts on your podcast. So if our listeners want the kind of detailed version of it, we would definitely recommend that they check out Jason and the Argonauts according to Liv on Myths Baby. Mm. But really, yeah, like you said, she does kill quite a few people, but it's in the context of really propping up Jason and helping him on his adventure, isn't it? Just he, I mean... He would be nothing without her, I think, is the major takeaway from everything she does is he would have died seven times over. Yes. If it weren't for Medea helping him with literally everything he does. Because he has to, like, first plow a field with a fire-breathing oxen, right? Yes. So this is is step one, right? So so when Jason turns up, he basically does ask straight away, he's like, can I just have that golden fleece? Yeah. But the king is like, no, 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 you can't. (laughs) As in all good Greek mythology, you're going to have to do some tasks first. You have to work for it. Yeah. And these tasks that I'm setting you unbeknownst to you are basically just so I can hopefully kill you along the way. But of course, because we've had Medea come under the sway of of Jason's charisma in one way or another. Either his enormous charisma or potion of love. One of the two. I actually don't know if either of you have seen like the 60s version with Maria Calais. You know the... No. Oh, so there's this fabulous film version with Maria Calais, the opera singer, as Medea. And the guy who... I don't know who the guy who plays Jason in that is. I don't know who the actor is, but... I mean, I can understand why you'd fall in love with him <laughs> on site. He's a bit of a babe. But so <laughs> regardless of how she's fallen for him, she knows that her father is setting him these tasks basically to get rid of him. Mm. And so this first task with the oxen, she's like, I can help you here. Well, this is actually part of her magic that I'm really interested in is because she develops this sort of ungent, an ointment, a magical ointment, because she has a really strong knowledge of herbology, which which has important links with another really important goddess, Hecate, who's going to come back into the story later on. They call it pharmaca. Oh, of course, like pharmacy. Yeah. Pharmacology. Yeah, but they and they yes. treated it like kind of like a magic in mythology pharmaca, but really it just meant like making drugs. Yes. So she is, she has this these connections with that earth magic, which I think is also again, oh my god, so connected with women and witchcraft through history. But we get the beginning of, of this here because she gives him anointment to protect himself. It'll make him invulnerable to the fire breathing oxen's 
buy a breath, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, because his first task is he needs to use these oxen to plough a field. Mm. That's the first task. So, so that he, he can sow dragon's teeth into the field, which then sprout into an army. But he doesn't know that's going to happen, though. Well, no. Of but course. That but that's the plan. What happens. That is what happens. That's, yeah. Which is weird. And it's not like the first zomb- time in mythology. No, it's not, is it? This no. has happened before. <laughs> It's so weird. Those crazy Greeks. Like, so the army is sprouted and then Medea also is comes to the rescue because he's otherwise going to get slaughtered by this weird dragon teeth zombie army. And she's like, and this is where we see her use her intelligence. Okay, so what I really love about this story is we see her use of the natural world and magic and then we get her wits because she's like, hey, you can totally distract this army by throwing a rock at them. They won't know where the rock has come from and they'll just start killing each other. And that somehow works. That's somehow a logical thing to do. Yeah. It's Greek mythology. (laughs) (laughs) And it does work. It does work. Yeah. And the army all kill each other because someone threw a rock. And, of course, because I love to constantly refer to old epic 60s movies because that's... For some reason, just I who just, you are. I, that's who I am. And I grew up watching old epics. There is, of course, as well, the terrific 60s Jason and the Argonauts, mm-hmm. where we see, which doesn't quite follow the mythology, you know, exactly. Does it make Jason the hero? Is that why? <laughs> well, yeah, in this, but in this version of the story, yes, definitely. But we have him fighting an army of skeletons oh. who are fabulously puppeteered for the wow. time. I've seen that GIF. Oh, my God. It's so good. I've highly seen it in GIF form, but it looks great. It's terrific. And I highly recommend everybody watch that. And so we've got this army of skeletons coming at him, which is a little bit different to the mythology itself, where we've kind of got these zombie-esque figures that come I don't know how to picture them because they're dragon's teeth men. Yeah, I just I, I always just picture them yeah. as skeletons because of said film's <laughs> influence on my formative years. <laughs> but so we see Medea here. She's she's helped Jason to now yeah. win that fleece. Well, there was one more task, and that is putting the dragon that guards the fleece yes, to sleep. Of so course. she gives him another potion that puts that dragon to sleep so that he can sneak past the dragon and, and now he gets the fleece. So again, that's already three things. Yes. He would not have been able to do had she not been there going, I have a solution to this problem for you, Jason. Yeah, that's right. So she's helped him all these times and now he's got the fleece in his hands and we're going to need to flee with the fleece. Yeah, because flee with of the course fleece. her dad's not happy about the fact that he succeeded. That's that right. Medea helped him, I guess. And this brings us to a, a very dark part now. Of yeah. her story. The yeah. first of, of these murders that we discussed, of, of these deaths. Well, that, I mean, this part is something else. And I often wonder like, where it kind of came up in the mythology because it's sort of, I mean, it's not not really in character, the character that we know so far. But she, when they're escaping, brings her younger brother, I believe he's younger, but regardless, her brother with them on the ship because she knows it will distract her father when she kills Mm. her brother and then slowly cuts him up into pieces, dropping the pieces individually overboard because her father will be a good enough father and want to give his son a proper burial, which includes finding all the pieces. It's, oh man, what I love about this, like, okay, love is a strong word, but what (laughs) I find really interesting about this is it's so calculated. It Mm. is. You know, she's like, 
it's not like she's dismembering her brother just because she's a psychopath who really enjoys it. She's like, no, this is going to cause my father to spend a lot of time. Yeah, it's just to cause like a severe delay, just to slow him down. Yes. And she's willing to do that to slow yeah. him down. Oh, it's chillingly calculated, yeah. though. It is. But of course, we see as well that she's not necessarily at ease with the act that she's performed. As you said, it's a calculated act, but it's not like she's done it out of sheer cruelty because no. she wants to be cleansed of this act as well. And so this brings us back to her her heritage, her family, and the powerful individuals who um, she's related to because not only is she the basically the granddaughter of the son, which is a pretty handy thing to be, <laughs> but this also places her as the niece to mm. a very powerful witch. Yeah, who people may know as Cersei, who you've recently discussed in another episode, didn't you, with yeah. fuckboys of literature, Emily. Yeah, we talked about Madeline Miller's book on Cersei, which is fascinating too. But, I mean, her that character in general is amazing. And there's actually some sources where she's Medea's sister, and not her mm. aunt, which is, I mean, either oh. way, they've got an interesting connection and they're always, I think, related, but the relation varies. But that's the case with all mythology. It's very hard to keep track of. Yes. But yeah, so, I mean, just she's able to just go to her her aunt and ask for that kind of purification. Yeah, which I think is important to her because it is so much of this, I think, as well that we have to remember is about kinship and family honor and what that means to individuals and who you're aligning yourself with and loyalty beyond so that you've got the loyalty of the I hope I pronounce this right Eolcus Eolcus yeah household Eolcus as well as then those kind of kinship ties that extend to who you align yourself with Mm. so going to Cersei for forgiveness is a really important part of sort of maintaining that purity and and honor I suppose Mm. it's also particularly important in ancient Greece like as much as we would sort of consider those things important anytime if you killed a family member it's about the worst thing you could do and usually there's a special type of punishment reserved for those people and then on top of that just generally killing anyone the person would always have to go seek that purification. Usually you just go to a different part of Greece and you ask the leader there to purify you of what you've done. But in her case, I think she knows she needs something a bit more strong. Mm. So she was, you know, seeking that certain type by going to Cersei, who was not only a family member, but a very powerful witch. So she just kind of needed that extra level of purification in in order to continue on existing in the Greek world. Mm. Mm. Because of course... Now we've got this journey back. Obviously, all good myths, all good Greek myths, you need to have a journey in return, right? You can't (laughs) can't just go one way. You're going to have to go one way and then you're going to have to come back. We stop off to seek the purification for this act. But then there's also multiple other acts that Mm -hmm. Medea performs on this journey back that again save Jason and his men. Yeah, because she saves him from the Talus. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Talus. So this bronze giant Mm. who has one essential vein that runs room that keeps I find going. the story so confusing I can't picture it but well, that's why you need to see Jason and the Argonauts okay. from 1960 <laughs> whatever three four I don't know something like that and she basically removes the the nail the stopper that keeps all of his life fluid in yeah so that he basically bleeds out from this one vein <laughs> so again she's assisted him here yeah. because 
Talos basically stands on his island throwing rocks at passing ships and nice. you can't you can't get past him. Yeah. So they need to stop off here and defeat him before they can move on on the next part of their journey. So again, Medea has come to the rescue. And then they get to Iolcus, which is Jason's homeland, and that's sort of been usurped, hasn't it? Like his rightful place as the heir of Iolcus has been usurped by somebody else. Peleos. Yeah. His uncle has yeah. come in and in very Hamlet-esque fashion. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, <laughs> it's actually quite Shakespearean, this version yeah. of the story. This um, part of the story, I should say. And has come in and and, and taken over but she has a solution as always she always has a solution yeah a very calculated also very bloody and very graphic Mm, move and that is that she tricks his daughters so Peleus is pretty old and the daughters are like oh wow you've reinvigorated Jason's father because she did that she gave him a potion which made him healthy and strong again can you do the same with our father and she's like yeah no worries like I've got this potion I guess and I'm going to show you I'm going to put this old ram we'll chop up the old ram put it in the potion and hey a young ram has has sprung out isn't that amazing magic wow and so the daughters get really excited and chop up their father and put him in the thing the in cauldron the cauldron basically they make a soup yeah yeah <laughs> they make a dad soup a dad yeah soup. But, of course, this dad soup lacks all of the magic and herbs and potions that (laughs) Medea has put in her previous soup. Oh, dear. It's so – oh, my God. I just – again, this part of the story is is Medea committing a really gruesome act but through somebody else. Yeah. She actually doesn't perform – well, in some versions of the story – she goads on the daughters to kill him, but she also slits his throat. Okay. She also does take part in the action of But it's also what is so kind of fucked about this story is that she makes them so culpable. Mm. Like she implicates them in this horrific act. And so can you imagine being those daughters and then just being like, what have we done? Mm-hmm. We chopped up our dad. And in the eyes of the gods, like they did it, you know, like yes. she helped them, but they did it. There's no, yes, yeah, there's no getting convinced in the eyes of the gods and what you've actually done. So yeah. she just, yeah, she uses all, all she has to sort of trick people into doing exactly what she wants. And it's always yeah, incredibly gruesome. But I mean, that wouldn't hold up in a court of, of law now if you were like, well, she told me to cut my dad <laughs> up and cook him in a soup. She so it's it her fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, really, the daughters are the ones who do it. So, it's, she's getting off on a technicality. <laughs> I think it's more than it. I would say that's more than a technicality. But she definitely is, the, she is the influence. She is. Yeah. The instrumental one. In but it. again, I think this brings us back to that whole combination of that sort of the knowledge of magic, the knowledge of poisons, the knowledge of herbology, oh, pharmaca. Pharmaca, yeah. And her intelligence, her wits, her her ability to manipulate. And we on our podcast talk about what manipulation means for women because it has such negative connotations. But if you remember the powerlessness of women in history and society and in mythology, manipulation is often the only means that women have for agency because it is about enacting power behind the scenes. And so really she is combining these two forms of power, the only two forms of power that are available to her as a woman, essentially. She is an extraordinary woman and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. But she is making the best of the two things that she has, 
isn't she? Yeah. Her wits to manipulate others and her magic. Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, especially in ancient Greece, there was so little power. You were just property as a woman. So, I mean, her, the necessity of her to Jason is what mm. she is really valuing, you know, seeing that she is what is keeping him alive and keeping him successful, which of course is then going to lead to even more drama mm. as we continue. But yeah, I mean, she knew exactly, she knows exactly how to use what she has to keep herself in this position of power. Yeah. Yes. And it is entirely for Jason as well. But that's, I think, the interesting question of whether or not she's under some sort of love spell, because that would, I guess, help to explain the extremity of her actions, because it is entirely about supporting Jason. Or is she doing this because in betraying her family and leaving her home, she does need to hold on to Jason and that relationship to maintain her own power. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. She would have nothing if he left her. So yeah. once she's done one thing, it's sort of like, well, now I have to stay with him no matter what. Yeah. Mm, so right. either way, the extremity of her actions really comes down to that A, devotion to Jason, but B, perhaps that devotion is also about holding on to her mm. own power and agency. Just self-preservation, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, because she's in exile now, she can never go home again. And this does bring us, I suppose, to the next version of Medea, I suppose, in this mm. general mythology. Because in this kind of Jason and the Argonauts version of, of Medea, this is pretty much where her, her story comes to an end I suppose like oh she does sort of exist further on into into myth but really her story here in terms of how we remember her now is picked up with what is essentially one man's version of her mm. myth because we come to Euripides play Medea and this is the next version of her story that we come to and it is a play that does bring up these questions of the fact that she has become an exile from her homeland. She is very much an other in a very strange and foreign world to mm. her. And so, yes, pretty much everything she has now does rely on Jason. And Jason is about to take all of that yes. away from her. Oh, Jason, what have you done? Yes. Are we ready to get then into Euripides, Medea? Happy to. I've yes. been ready all my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess maybe we should just like so a little tiny bit of context for the play is that it was written circa 431 BCE and it would have been performed as probably like a part of these like festivals Dionysian that they had, the Dionysian festivals. festivals. Because Athenian, so I mean, when we talk about Greek drama and this is something I think that is interesting. We're really, we're talking about Athenian drama, really, yeah. because the, uh, I mean, the audience, the intended audience for these plays were the people of Athens. And also, as Laura and I were just discussing as well, like pretty much predominantly the male population of Athens. And the women, because we've touched on this in our previous episodes as well, women in, in Greece, women of status and class actually had zero freedom. Mm absolutely no freedom whatsoever yeah. and really the only women who did have some kind of freedom to move around were the hetera <laughs> and your porni they were yeah. the sex workers yeah 
but also the slaves as yeah. well. These were the women that could move more freely. But they also in, weren't in just society. sex workers. They were cultured and educated and they were entertainers and performers and they actually probably had by far the most agency as yeah, women. Yeah, in, in this society of any of the other women. That is fascinating. I didn't know any of that. I'm, I'm just listening so intently to this. I'm going to yeah. look so much into these people after. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, these were probably the only women that really would have been allowed to see plays being performed. It wouldn't have been your wife back at home no. who'd be coming along to see this play. So I think that it's actually really important to think about the intended audience at yeah. the time. And, of course, we've shifted and changed now and, and we look at Medea now and we read this play as such an intensely very feminist It's a lens. surprisingly feminist text for its time and context. Mm. But I don't think Euripides was sitting down <laughs> at his typewriter because they had typewriters in 431 BC. They absolutely did. Just like punching out. Um, like this is I'm going to write be, the proto-feminist text. I'm writing it right now. <laughs> but this is something that we should keep in the back of our minds for the play as we yeah. unpick it. Yeah. Well, and Euripides too, I don't know this, you know, in terms of the academic confirmation of it, but from what I have read, Euripides is the most sort of progressive of the yes. three yeah. um, mm -hmm. dramatists that we have surviving works, which I always like to specify that it's just what we have surviving. There yeah. were yeah, that's right. hundreds of yeah. thousands of people who you know, we just have nothing of what they did. So who knows what they were writing? Yeah, there may have been way more feminist texts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it breaks my heart every time I think about it. But when it comes to Euripides, he, from what I've read, he treats women the best as if they have sort of the most agency. They still don't have, mm. you know, much. Yeah. But I would say he gives them the most. He gives them characters. Yeah. yeah he gives you're them humanity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're so right. He's the rebel. He's kind of the he, – he's – no, you're so right, Liv. He is definitely the rebel writer of the time. And he was tapping into some very different ideas to those other surviving playwrights mm. and to the other surviving work that we look at. So – I guess that then leads us to think about what is happening in Euripides' <laughs> yeah, Medea. What is it? We've set the scene. What is it that's happening here? So we're opening with the nurse who kind of actually gives us a little bit of a breakdown of what happened with the Argonauts, but she's lamenting it. She's like, oh, if only, if only Medea had not gone off with Jason. And, if only and she never met that wretch. That fucking guy yeah. if only she never met that fucking guy then we would all be fine and this is immediately setting us up for like shit's gonna go down yeah well and I think it it starts so I mean it, it just I've been like highlighting things in my edition I don't know what translation you guys have but the oh I was using the Diane Rayle okay. Cambridge University translation that's fair mine is John Davy, but now I hear there's a one by woman so I'd like to read that one too but yeah um, I specifically chose that one yeah I usually try woman. to but this one I just already had yeah but the even her the first sort of big thing that the nurse says it just seems so tongue-in-cheek a lot of it and one line she says is that this is what keeps a marriage intact more than anything when a husband can mm -hmm. count on complete support from his wife yes, and I just yes. think that like on the very first page of this play just like sums yep. up where we're going with this and I yeah I think I'm not sure if it's the same line with a different translation mm -hmm. but a line that I've got highlighted is when a woman does not oppose her man the greatest security is hers oh I'm sure that's a translation that's a lot yes. that's I love the comparison of translations my god yeah even better yes <laughs> because what has happened is the nurse knows that Jason has been a bad, bad man. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you're going to put it? I like it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, because what has he done, Lauren? He he has broken our dear Medea's heart and he has gone off. And, okay, here's the thing. He's not even having an affair with another woman. He married another woman. Mm. That's an interesting thing, right? So Medea and Jason aren't necessarily lawfully married. So she's the other, right? We've established that she's the other. She's literally a barbarian. Yeah, she's a foreigner. She's supposed yeah, to be she's a, a barbarian. Four, yeah, exactly. But yeah. And yeah. we and we should say that barbarian doesn't necessarily have the same connotations. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yes. So she's seen as a barbarian princess because Which as, does literally just mean not Greek. That's right. I should yeah. imply what that implication is. Yeah. It's just not Greek. It doesn't have all that uncivil necessarily, although a little bit of that civilized kind of ideas. Yeah. Can I explain where it came from? Yes. Barbarism. Yes, do. I just love it so much, and I've said it so many times in my podcast, but the word barbarian comes from the Greeks just hearing other languages and hearing them say the words bar, bar. Yeah. <laughs> like bar, 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 bar. Like that's bar, just bar, bar, another, bar, it was bar, a bar, language bar, bar. that wasn't Greek. <laughs> and they were like, these people are barbarians. And then we turned that word into something bad. Uh, yes. It's amazing. The etymology of words yeah. is amazing. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. It's terrific. Because as well, I mean, we, we mentioned that she's from this land of Colchis or Colchis. And but, I mean, really, in, in terms of thinking of that geographically, that's basically Georgia. That's where that is. That's present-day Georgia, yeah. right? So she's she. if you think about where she is in relation to Greece, where we set our scene, in Corinth, in fact, is where we find ourselves now, it's such a, an idea of such a foreign land. Mm. It's so far away. And the Greeks well, the Corinthians, wouldn't have had a, any real concept of where she came from. And yes, we I guess we think of that word barbarian now as something very different. But even then, they wouldn't necessarily have seen her as a barbarian princess in the way that we think of it. But sh- they would have seen her as such a strange, mm. exotic, foreign and quite frankly, scary person. Well, because as well, everybody does know her history and they know that this is a woman who accompanied Jason on this massive epic quest. They know that she was present through all of these heroic deeds. And so that does give her a sort of more masculine already, like a more masculine presence. And also the fact that she did essentially elope with Jason, Mm. whether or not that marriage is legitimate, it means that she wasn't given to him by her father, Mm. which also means that she's relying on more of a, the type of agreement that's made between equals or Mm. between Mm -hmm. men, you know, this agreement about what their marriage means because it wasn't that like handing over of her from one man to another. And because in order to actually marry anyone outside of your own city state, you needed special permission to do it, which Mm. is why you could marry off princesses to kings and princes from other lands because you would have that special permission to do it. But if you're simply an exile who's eloped with someone because you've murdered your own brother and (laughs) legally that's not viewed as a marriage. Yes. So this is what Jason uses here to basically be like, well, I can get married because essentially you were never actually my legitimate wife. And he's already benefited from everything that Medea can give him. She's already given him. He's got the golden fleece. He got his position back on Iolcus. He's now got two sons. And this other woman, is it Glauche? I was pronouncing it Glauke just because usually I think it's, well, usually it's a hard sound regardless of whether it's a C or a K in Greek. But at the same time, it's very hard to 
do that all the time when you're speaking in English. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's all relative. So Glauca, the daughter of the king, is a very good match for him because she's Greek and obviously this is going to allow him to make even more, you know, advancement in his career and life and fortune and power and everything. So mm. she's a much better option. But Medea is pissed off as is very understandable yes. in this situation. Well, because it leaves her screwed. She's just nothing now. Yes. Mm. And of course, you know, I've mentioned the idea that she's that other, she's that stranger to Corinth, but that doesn't mean that she's friendless in Corinth either. No. Because as you mentioned, we have the chorus. The, the chorus are totally on her side. They are 100% like, yep, Medea, this sucks. Yep. And we are, at least in the very beginning, they're totally on board with her anger. She says, this unexpected catastrophe has destroyed my life. And then she has this amazing little speech. And again, I'm reading the Rayor translation. She's talking about why this is so fucking unfair to women and she says of all who live and can think women are the most miserable species we must buy a husband with abundant goods and even more hurtful than the initial purchase take him as master of our body mm. that is the greatest challenge whether we win a bad husband or a decent one divorce ruins a woman's reputation nor is it possible to refuse a husband without instruction at home you must be a prophet to understand new habits and customs and what sort of bedmate you will need to manage if we do a good job with that and a husband lives with us without protesting the marriage yoke then our life is enviable if not better to die the translation I hear I have here says that they want to play the tyrant, like master to play the tyrant mm. with our bodies, mm -hmm. which as you're reading that, I just mm. have this line highlighted and it's, yeah, I mean, the, the whole speech is, this is why I think, I mean, as much as Euripides was still a man in ancient Greece, like he had something to say about women and it's mm. fascinating. And also on that as well. The interesting thing about how Medea is even introduced to us here at the start of the play, Euripides does it in a very innovative way because usually because of this idea, right, that women of status in Greek society stayed inside, they didn't come out, they mm. stayed inside the house. Normally when you have a female figure in Greek tragedy or comedy come out, they apologise for themselves to start off with. They're like, look, I'm sorry I've come out of the house, <laughs> but I've come out because I need to tell you this. And they usually start off with that apology. Mm. Medea, she comes out of the fucking house guns blazing. <laughs> she just comes out. She's like, I have come. Fucking deal with it. Here I am. And it's actually like that might seem like a really mm. insignificant thing. But what Euripides has done there is actually really, and this is why I said before he was the rebel, that's actually a really rebellious thing to write, yeah. to have Medea come out, no apologies. Yeah, no explanation. I'm just fucking here and I've come yeah. out of the house. Bursting out, yeah. Well, and he does yeah. the same thing at the end too, which I won't spoil it yet, but the way he handles the end of the play is equally rebellious. Yes. 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 <laughs> oh, we'll get there. <laughs> but also what I like about this speech, oh, this is, yeah, there's so much in this. There's so much in this is that it is a lot about like, okay, so yes, it's very unfair. And, and she also says that for women, childbirth is really more dangerous than going to battle. Mm, she says mm -hmm. that she would prefer to go to battle than she would to give birth again, which of course is true because, oh my God, the mortality rate for, yes. for oh mothers God, yeah. back then. But what she also says is that while women may not be able to go to battle and they may not have weapons and they may not have the same kind of physical strength, when they are betrayed, they can be 
hugely dangerous. She says, when they're betrayed, no one wields a mind more murderous. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Which I th also think fits Medea perfectly. It really sums up what's <laughs> about to come, doesn't it? It's like, this is her yeah. first real big speech. And you're like, okay, so this this is what the play is about. <laughs> yeah. And it so kind this of is also, what we're setting up. Like in a Western context as well, it sort of taps into those later, I guess, kind of Christian or biblical ideas of, of a woman scorned, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the danger of. <laughs> you don't want to fuck. You don't want to fuck with a woman scorned. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So she's laid out on the table what's happening here. Jason found himself a younger, prettier, beautiful, beautiful and ethnically <laughs> acceptable wife. And so he's going to discard Medea. Now, that means that basically what's going to happen is we're going to have Creon come on the scene. Yeah. So he's the king. He's the father of this beautiful Glauca that Jason's going to be marrying. And he is basically going to tell Medea that she needs to get out of town. She's I exiled. He's terrified of her. He And he says that outright. <laughs> he says without any qualms, he just says, by the way, you need to go because you terrify yeah, me. Yeah, I'm very afraid of what you might do mm. in light of these events. He says it's much easier to guard against an angry, sharp-tongued woman or man than a silent, clever one. He also, as soon as he walks on, I don't know what your translation is like, but he basically tells her to smile. Like, he just... Yes! Yeah. <laughs> it's like the first thing he says to her is, you with your sullen looks. And it's like, okay, I mean, maybe she's got a good reason. <laughs> Yeah, it's like all those douchebags in life. They're like, hey, sweetie, how about a smile? You look bad. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's not that bad. Come on, cheer up. Resting Love bitch can't face. can't be that hard. Fuck but, you, Creon. But, Fuck you. But the thing about Medea is she also knows when to be sharp-tongued mm. and when to placate men and when to sort of tell them what they want to hear. Because, again, I think this is part of how she's able to manipulate very well and she's very, like, uses her wiles and her intelligence really well. Mm. So she totally just, like, tells him, like, oh, no, no, no. Really, I'll be good. I'm fine. You don't need to worry about me. I'm really just worried about my children. Mm. And please, for the sake of, like, you're a father. You understand. Please don't banish us because my sons, like my poor sons, mm. they need the security of their home. And he's not really fooled. But he does allow her one day to get yeah. her shit together before she's banished. See, that's the interesting thing about Creon here as well. And a lot of, like, pretty much most of the characters other than Jason um, who speak to us during this play, is that, to be honest, Creon doesn't blame Medea. And he says that. He says, no. look, this is actually not your fault. Yeah, but. But I've got no choice but yeah. to get you to leave because, yeah, because I'm terrified of you. <laughs> and so he he's actually in this difficult position where he knows it's not this woman's fault but he knows she's got to go. And when she does plead with him to allow her that extra time, he actually says in that very sort of flagging kind mm. of we're going to see where this ends up way, he says, look, I'm probably making a mistake, yeah. but okay. How much trouble can she make in, in one day? It's one oh, day. This is probably a mistake. All right, <laughs> sure. Of course he's made a mistake. He's made a mistake. As soon as he leaves, she's plotting. As soon as he's off that stage. She's like, three of my enemies will be corpses. Even the stage directions show how much she was manipulating him. 
like as soon as he's gone, it just says now she's back on her feet and she's composed. It's like yes. mm-hmm. she went from, you know, falling all over herself, begging him to help her. And then as soon as he's gone, she's like, well, she's fine. And she's just plotting <laughs> what to do next. She didn't actually yeah, no, do that. And this is interesting because what this leads us to now is basically this idea, right? She's going to go into exile. She's got no choice. She's got to go. But she's bought herself a little bit of time. So her nurse starts to sort of plead with her. She's yeah. like, right, you've bought this time. You need to start to think about allies where can we go when we get out of town we need a place to go to where we can take refuge also i think it's significant to mention at this point she calls on hecate for Mm. aid in this as well which is an interesting alignment given how much i think those two women reflect each other again hecate has that earth knowledge the herbalism knowledge and she's also the protectress of the eolcus the protectress of the home and the household and essentially really what medea is doing is it's revenge against the dishonor to her household Mm, it's mm -hmm. it's revenge against jason's transgressions for breaking up her family Mm -hmm. but next though jason enters He's, okay, we haven't seen Jason yet in the play, but immediately you can tell he's a, a massive douchebag. He's like, just the absolute worst, isn't he? I, everything. He is. Oh, he's so slimy. Because he, he's sort of, he comes in and he's like, look, I don't mind you talking shit about me. I know that you've got a right to be angry at me, but you can't be dragging on the royal family, Medea. You really, you need to keep your mouth shut, woman, or you might get yourself banished. And in fact, you're lucky that that's all that's going to happen to you. Mm. I am the one who tried to calm down the king. Basically, you owe me everything. Yeah. Yes. And this is actually your fault. Like your banishment is your fault. If only you had kept your mouth shut, everything would be fine. It's so typical man in this type of stories but even he has to reassure her it's almost not because I stopped you know desiring you I know that's what Mm, you're worrying mm -hmm. about like he has to tell her that like as if that's her number one concern is whether or not he stopped finding her sexy and it's like no dude like that's not really the issue so much as her life is over because you're leaving her (laughs) because he has destroyed her life yeah she has nowhere to go she has no power she has no allies this is it and flattery is not going to get you out of this situation Jay and she's not fooled by his whole little story. She's not taking his bullshit. And she outrightly, I love, I a fucking anyone, please read Medea because the dialogue it's is so, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's so good. Oh it's my just god. Brilliant. She yeah. is such a no-nonsense bitch. And she says, Vile bastard, I call you the worst curse. My tongue can speak to your unmanly self. She's just like, Yeah, you can't. That's yeah. basically <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Let's not miss words. <laughs> And he also then has the goal to say that like, oh, but it's because of me that you've even had the opportunity to live in this very civilized place. Of well, Greece. yes. Well, because like, of, of course, because first, th- this is his rebuttal basically yeah. to her saying, "Do you remember yeah. the fact that I saved your life uh, against those bulls? I saved against your life against the dragon, against that zombie army, against Talos, against, against that giant bronze guy. <laughs> I saved your life." multiple fucking times. <laughs> I also, like, killed your Hamlet uncle. Um, I, but he's like, well, you know what? I actually, I've done pretty good by you. Yeah. I took you out of your... Barbarian home. Yeah, land. exactly. And I, I've brought you to civilization. Yep. I've made you 
a respectable woman yeah. in Greek society. And then because she won't accept his bullshit, like because she won't just go, oh, you're right, Jason, and sort of placate him, he says, mortals should have another way to father sons and no need for the female race. Then mankind would have no trouble. That line oh! was something else. Oh, my God. You just, at that point, you're just like, oh, God, Jason, you really are the worst. I feel like he's so much of internet society that they're the worst part yes. of internet society he is isn't he yeah we, we all know a jason yeah i think I, don't we? or we see them on twitter like often <laughs> so this is an interesting thing as well right is that jason is awful and euripides doesn't mince words with making him awful right yeah he's not a sympathetic character at all no no now, this is clear, right? So I guess this is why we look at it through a feminist lens yeah. now. And why we can have that line where Jason's saying, if only, like, we could bear children without women, then the world would be a better place. We know we're not supposed to believe him in this. Like, yeah. we know that that's not actually what the play is telling us. Yeah, definitely. And Euripides is being very, very clear with how he views this situation because Jason is basically the only one who thinks Jason's the, doing the right thing. Pretty much every other character in the play up to this point sides with Medea, thinks mm. that she's the one who's been wronged. But at the same time, this comes back to this idea of Greek drama being in some ways instructive and didactic and telling you something, but also Greek drama as, you know, with this rise of democracy, also being the kind of thing that presents this audience with dilemmas. Yeah. And the crowd watching is a crowd full of Jasons. They're <laughs> all... It's the horror, it's the true. horror. <laughs> it is really true. They are really being asked to side yeah. with Jason. Well, being asked to see Jason's side of things because that's the side of things that they would sit in if... This yeah. audience would be like, well, if I had a wife who wasn't really the right wife and I needed a better position in society, I would also need to abandon yeah. her in order to get a better wife, right? Yeah. So they really see the logic in his position. And also probably don't really think of the contributions that their wives make to their own lives and their success and their power. Precisely. But what Euripides is doing is he's also turning that around to be like, right, but we can see that Jason's hubris, right? Mm. So this is that idea of that great man making that arrogant choice that's going to lead to his downfall. So Euripides is playing with Jason's hubris as this plot point for his audience mm. of Jason's. Mm. I think we forget that. I yeah. think we start to focus on thinking of Medea as this character that's speaking to women, but very much... Jason is this character that's designed to show the men of the audience a particular mm. kind of hubris. Mm. What I always think, is, always think is interesting too is that it was played by men. Yes. So this was also men on stage dressed as women putting this on, which I just think adds an extra layer of, you know, it's basically all men in the whole place. And this is the subject matter. And the only women who are there are probably their mistresses. That's right. <laughs> and they're just sort of sitting quietly thinking about what yeah. they're watching. Yeah. <laughs> and so I guess, yeah, we aren't sympathizing with Jason. And part of what makes it, again, this is me reading from a contemporary feminist lens, but what I love is that Medea, she is spit fiery in her responses and she is angry and she's not holding back. I love she's got this one line where Jason says you chose this blame no one but yourself and she replies I did what took a wife and betrayed you like 
it's that simple. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just like, you fucking, this is not my fault. You are an asshole. And she will call him out on it every single time. So much to the point that eventually he's just says, you look, this anger is not going to get you anywhere and you need to let it go. And that is such an important idea that I really want to talk about is this whole idea of women being expected to subsume their anger for the comfort of men, you know, because this is what has happened since time immemorial and it's still so relevant today. Mm. I think really, I mean, I'm writing a paper at the moment that's sort of looking at female anger in the wake of Me Too and it is such a present moment right now that this play feels really relevant because it is about a woman not letting a man get away with his shit Mm -hmm. and calling him out on his shit and using her anger to fuel her ability to punish him, you know, because Medea is full of, and it's not just anger. I think it's rage. It's powerful Mm. rage. It's a totally unjust thing that has happened to her. And she is very justified Mm. in her rage, whether we agree with her actions or not, her rage is totally justified. And rage is something that's typically linked with being out of control. Yeah. You know, with anger that has gone beyond that it's it's hysterical. Mm -hmm. It's less civilized. And this is where we get men saying, look, calm down, love. Yeah. You know, (laughs) As Jason does, just calm down. And I think because she is barbarian and other, it's also something that is associated with marginalised people. Still today, rage is seen as being something that belongs to the out-of-control politics of, say, black women, for example. You know, we get our whole stereotype of the angry black woman, which I guess in Medea's case she is the angry barbarian Mm -hmm. woman, isn't she? She's the angry other. She's... Yes. Yeah, just the rage of someone who is not what you're used to. And not respectable Mm. and civilised. And, of course, that uncontrollable nature of that rage, like you said, it builds into this hysteria, this concept that, you know, really, Medea, in a lot of ways, this is the point at which it's like, well, she's crazy. Yes, exactly. Because we're going to see, we haven't gotten to, of course, the crux of the action that she performs, the the vengeance that she has, which we will be getting to soon. But this particular act that she performs is seen as a result of this building madness from her rage rather than actually a calculated rational Rational is, of course, we're going to, you know. <laughs> we'll deconstruct We'll that. deconstruct <laughs> that momentarily. But actually a thought process yeah. that is the result of all of these actions yeah. and her thinking through vengeance yeah. is not madness. It's calculated. Yeah. Because really she is, yeah. Her anger is fueling this I am going to not let you get mm. away with this. Mm-hmm. And that is something that women are not allowed to do. They're not allowed to let, not let men get away with it, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. And as soon as they do, it becomes a monstrous act yes. to act out in this way. So we'll come back to this, I think. But that brings us to her ally who arrives on the scene, who is Aegeus, the king of Athens. He has his own troubles. He's he come does. to Corinth for a reason. So she's like, yeah, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I've been to see an oracle Oracle's told me I can't have kids. You're pretty smart and you understand this sort of shit, so maybe you could help. Mm. And she's like, well, actually, I can. I can help you. I can help you. This is fortuitous for us both. But you have to promise, and I don't just mean you have to promise. Like, I mean, 
you got to really promise. Like she holds him hard. Yeah, she word. really does. She gets everything she can out of that. Like, no, swear yeah. on everything that you'll uphold this. I think Aegeus gives her the idea. This is where she starts to come up with her unthinkable she, revenge. She has, yes, the details of it. She has thought about murder and yeah. poison yeah. before this. She has. But it's Aegeus who specifically says being childless is the worst. Mm. He is like, you know, for a man, for a king, if you don't have children, it's as good as death. You know, I need children. Not because they're very nurturing, but because that's your line. That's your immortality. Yeah. And because, of course, to the Greeks and the Greek heroes, it was all about immortality. Yep. That was the most important thing. And how did you get immortality? Well, you got immortality through your glorious deeds and through your the line legacy. of descendants. Mm. And so if you take away that line of descendants, you have destroyed that man. And I think we see a turn in Medea after this yep. interaction. That makes a lot of sense. Just the way you've laid it out there. I mean, I think what she might have considered it to be an option or thought about what she could have done to, you know, get back at Jason. But that this, yeah, him sort of laying it out exactly like that is sort of, okay, this is sort of what I need to do or mm. the best mm-hmm. slash worst thing I can do to punish Jason. Yeah. yeah. Which is, is, of course, that she does lay out her plan quite explicitly, which is that she's going to go and speak to Jason. She will be sweet and supplicant to him. And she would do all those things he wanted. Yep. Yep. Play the docile passive wife. Meanwhile, ask if her sons can remain, you know, draw on his good nature to protect his sons so that she can send those sons with poisoned gifts to the princess. She's got a poisoned dress and a poisoned tiara. I've got bunch of those in my cupboard at home too <laughs> just for occasions you never know you never know when you're gonna need a poison dress and a poison yeah. coronet you don't and then she says what she will need to do but i cry out at what deed i must do next i will kill my children my own no one can rescue them so now we know <gasps> now we know what it is that she's going to do she's going to kill her own children by jason And in doing so, destroy his chance at immortality. Yeah. But to do that as well, as you said, with this poison dress, she needs to make sure that his future bride can't bear him any children either. Yeah. Which means she needs to be off the scene too. Yeah. So hence why we have to have this murder that also comes into it. Yeah. And to her, the act of killing her children is not like, it's not divorced from emotion. She's not just like- Oh, that's a great idea. You know, she isn't really like a mad woman in no. this. I think she's she's talked about in those terms of that kind mm-hmm. of hysterical mad woman kind of way, but she's not. Yeah. It's a sacrifice. Yeah. And it is difficult for us in the contemporary world to understand that because in our society today, infanticide or filicide. Yeah, because is- it's really filicide, because infanticide is killing an infant. Yeah. But her children are Older than that. So it's filicide really is the term we should use. But that is the ultimate transgression, isn't it? Like Mm. there Mm -hmm. are not very many things that a person can do in this society that are worse than that. Mm. That's how they felt about it too. Not that they, you know, they wouldn't have just because they're human, but that's the catalyst for so many of the most 
tragic and mm-hmm. long-lasting Greek myths is someone killing their child or killing yeah. their parent. We all know our good old mate Aristotle, right? Yes. Great guy. <laughs> had, some, had some fucking awesome shit to say about women, did Aristotle. Um, <laughs> Most of them did. Oh, what a terrific guy. What a top guy Aristotle was. Um, but Aristotle had a lot of criticism about Medea, about this play. He had a lot of criticism because, you know, he was a theatre critic. Can you all, you know, it was a very... He was that guy. He was that guy. <laughs> he was a, basically, he was a fucking know-all, was Aristotle. Sorry to destroy him for everyone. <laughs> but he basically criticised Euripides because he was like, you know what the problem with this play is, is that Medea's inconsistent. She's a, she's an inconsistent character I because disagree in, with that well completely. this is it right absolutely <laughs> because, in, because in his theory of drama your character basically states what they're going to do and they hold to their particular idea and he's like why is she crying about this oh why is she upset <sighs> about this this doesn't make sense if she's upset about what she's decided to do then that's actually a fault of our playwright oh he hasn't thought this character th- whereas of course the rest of us are like. No, what Euripides has done is made a real character. He's made a person. He's made a person. <laughs> Fucking Aristotle, you goddamn idiot. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're right. I mean, that's what makes Medea such an incredible character in this play is that she's completely sympathetic, mm. even though she's killing her children. You're supposed to care about how yes. she feels, even if you don't agree what she's doing. And she's... I mean, the only really sympathetic character. She's the only character with a lot of depth and agency mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so much depth. You actually want to pay attention to. She's exactly. Complex. She's, she's like, complete, she complex. She's so complex. And she just has so much going on that you can really feel those inner workings and how mm-hmm. she gets to where she gets and how she gets there. I and mean, I just, think as well that depth of emotion demonstrates to us that this is a sacrifice. You know, it is absolutely. And, It's a necessary sacrifice within, again, that kind of logic of his transgression is so awful and so terrible that it deserves the worst punishment. And this is the worst punishment. And even though that punishment requires this this awful sacrifice on her behalf, it is ultimately what is the kind of just action mm-hmm. yeah, a, she almost feels as though it's necessary yes yes we of course obviously none of us here are advocating for like <laughs> killing your children don't do that don't kill your don't children don't do that but bad it, idea you do have to remember to put it in this context of what it means what that sacrifice is and how important it is within the context of this mm, play yeah. and symbolically yeah. what symbolically that act is because really what she's saying is and she cries in the next scene, like when the tutor tells her that the gifts have been delivered and then she gets really upset and he's like, why are you yeah, upset? Well, like, and this is what Aristotle's problem is. He's yeah. like, well, why is she crying about yeah. the thing that worked out? It's because like, well, she's because... actually like, no, because this means it's happening. Like mm. I've set the wheels in motion and there's no turning back now. Mm. And she goes through this whole thing where she's like, I won't see my sons grow up. I won't see them get married. And that devastates her. But she also knows that she will not be the one to suffer for Jason's actions Mm. and she won't be mocked and she won't be made powerless. She is going to be the one at the end of the day who takes back her power. Mm. And that's what's so important about this. And I think we also, we do, if we strip away the horror of the act itself and think about it as that woman doing what she needs to do to bring a man to justice, Mm -hmm. then we can see 
the parallels to today. Yeah. You know, yeah. when we see it, and again, I'm thinking about something like the Me Too movement and say like the Kavanaugh trial or, or any of these trials that are happening right now is these women are sacrificing so much of their own lives and their emotional kind of mental health and all of that in order to bring men to justice. Mm -hmm. And when those men are brought to justice, they co-opt the victim narrative. They're the angry ones and that's okay for them to be angry. Yeah, but it's not okay for these women who have every right to be angry to be angry. And this is what we're seeing now. We're seeing angry women rising and Mm -hmm. saying, no, I'm not, why should I be the one to swallow this Mm -hmm. and get over it and just be expected to get on with my life? I'm going to make you pay for your bullshit. And rage is a very appropriate response to have in this this situation. And this is that idea that women can't have rage. That rage for women is so closely linked to monstrous and to hysteria. It's so closely linked to this idea of insanity. As soon as you are an angry woman, you are an insane woman. And there is nothing more frustrating than being angry and being told by any man in your life to be quiet to to calm down down. to calm down oh my god overreacting yes when i am angry and i am told i am overreacting i'm only gonna fucking get angrier about that (laughs) absolutely you know that is not the way to calm me down and this is precisely what medea does as well she's like you are not gonna fucking calm me down yeah and And you will not tell me yes to calm down. That's right. Mm. And so it's interesting as well because so we still haven't quite got to this final act that she commits mm. because first of all, as you mentioned, we've got this poison dress and this poison mm. coronet and they've been sent to the princess who we're avoiding saying her name. Um, <laughs> Glauca, I Glauca? do that exact thing in my podcast and mention it, so I'm so glad you did that. Like I, right. I was listening to myself over and I was like, oh, I actually comment on not wanting to say her name. Yeah. Or, or want to avoid saying it. Yeah. So and what this dress does. So oh the God. children oh come God, bearing the dress. the dress and the children are like, you know, mum sent us with these gifts. Can you imagine it as well? Like, oh, because all of this happens off stage. It does. All the mm. violence happens off stage. And what has happened is the princess is – She's received the boys and she's like, oh, I don't look, I don't really want to adopt these boys because, uh, you know, I'm young and beautiful. I'm and I want to have my own sons. I want to have my own sons. I want to live my own life. Blurg. But the, <laughs> the sons are like, look at all these beautiful things. We've and she's like, oh, I like presents. But also Jason does say to her, he's like, you disrespect my sons by not accepting these gifts. Yes. Like we've got to make our family whole. Yeah, Come that's on, love. right. Even yeah. though before he'd been totally on board with banishing them. But, yeah. You know. So she, she's a bit more excited about the golden dress and the crown. So she takes these and she's like, well, I'm going to, how about I do a little fashion show, everyone. <laughs> oh. And she drapes herself in the golden robe. She places the crown on her head and she struts about in front of the mirror for a bit, looking really nice until... And then! Oh, my God. dear. (laughs) Oh, God. The description of this is one of the most incredible things I've read in a long time. Isn't it? It's fucked. I've got a description. So 
when she puts it on, her skin changes. She, she trembles. She staggers over. She starts foaming at the mouth. And then her dress sets her skin on fire. And I quote, rising from the chair, she fled on fire, shaking her hair and head every which way, desperate to throw off the crown. But the gold band held firmly and the fire after she shook her hair blazed twice as fiercely as before. And then her father bends over her grieving. And because he touched the poison, he's infected as well. And when he tries to detach himself from her and the dress, it says she ripped his old flesh from Uh. the body. Bones. This is what happens off. This stage. is Euripides, and this is Euripides, right? Like this is not. This would never happen in Sophocles or no. Aeschylus. Even no. off stage, it wouldn't. This That's is Euripides right. again. Why he's the rebel playwright? Yeah, he's the most <laughs> violent, the most visceral. Yeah, oh. he's kind of the best. Yes, uh, he's by far the best. He's my favorite, without he's by a question. Far the I just best. I want to see this redone on film now. Like I'd love to see that this oh. image of these two children, their little box, you know, um. some crepe paper with the. <laughs> so obviously they had that then the dress unfolded up nicely oh dear stepmother please accept this gift and then fire skin falling off her face foaming at the mouth do you know what's interesting about that is that you know how i mentioned the maria calais version yeah. from the 60s i think in that they actually change it so that she goes mad and throws herself off of the battlements so that they didn't have to find a visual way. The the flesh melting off of her face. That's right. (laughs) So they didn't have to visually put that on screen because it's like, well, this isn't a horror. Yeah. Even though it's a fucking horror. It is. But, yeah, because it's such a vivid, visceral, grotesque image that occurs. But, of course, as well, because it's the children who have brought those gifts, this is the extra thing that seals their fate with Medea as well, yeah. right? Because she, as you said, she has been weighing it up. She's doing that thing where she's like, I've got to, no, I can't. I've got to, no, I can't. <laughs> and she has, and she's been torn about it. But because this has now happened, this has sealed their fates because those children are implicated in that yeah. act and they they will be killed now. Yeah. And if it's not by her, it's going to be by the Corinthians. Mm. Did you guys read it as though the children were still there watching it? I yeah. kind of yes. took it as, yeah? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I think that they're still there yeah. for the horror that unfolds. I like that because I think it shows how little personality they give them because there's nothing about yeah. what what it was like for them to watch that. Yeah, that's so true. They are just tools, aren't they? They're tools mm-hmm. in this entire play. And that's what they are. Symbolically, they're just little pawns in this game between Medea and Jason. But I think that there probably is something in that, in that. Much like when, you know, Medea did the same thing to the daughters of Peleos, Mm -hmm. they're now implicated in the horror of this. And yes, the Corinthians will kill them. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. They've got no hope Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So this. So she has to do it herself. Exactly. So now it's become absolutely unavoidable that she's going to have to see her plan through to the end. And she's, again, she's still, even though the wheels are turning, the wagon is moving, this is happening, she is still really, really split and upset and she has to resolve herself. And she says to herself, like, yes, my reckless hand, take up the sword, take it. Step up to the painful start of your life. Don't be cowardly. Don't remember the children, how very dear, how you gave them birth. But for this brief day, forget your sons, then mourn. Even if you kill them, even so they are dear, unfortunate woman that I am. 
Ugh. That is heart-wrenching. Yeah. It is actually heart-wrenching. It's so interesting that she's become this figure of crazy. Mm-hmm. Because there's really nothing in here that suggests that she's anything but sane and just aware of what she has to do. Yeah, it's entirely rational. Yeah. Like she's planned every stage. She's like, well, this has happened, therefore this needs to happen and this is the best way to do this. She's having to divorce herself from her emotions. She's in this passage, she's telling herself, you need to step away from your emotions. You need to put them aside. And it's so fascinating that it's been seen interpreted this way because I haven't sat down and had a chat with Euripides that would be fun. But, oh my God, would it? <laughs> you know, when people are like, who would you invite to a dinner if you could invite a Bring Euripides. <laughs> but I mean, Euripides, I don't think he's trying to make us think at any point that she's no. not doing no. that. I think he wants us to know and the audience to know she is rational. It's only in subsequent centuries yeah. of rereading that this idea of insanity has been attached mm-hmm. to her because we can't comprehend we, that a woman yeah, would right. kill her children. We can't understand that act yeah. unless it is the act of an insane woman. That's right. Mm-hmm. It can't be the act of a rational well, woman. Well, and it can't be that because, you know, women, even the separating it from the it's her children thing, it's the idea that women can't be capable of something that gruesome even regardless yes. of who she's killing it's the idea that she could be that gruesome that calculated mm. that smart the mm. whole everything about what she does has to be sort of separated from women late uh, yeah i mean it was then i think in its own way but certainly later when the patriarchy got even just evolved i suppose it was certainly mm. around back then but it's just, yeah, it's fascinating to to look back on it in that way and think, no, I think Euripides was making it absolutely clear how well she had thought this out and how much she knew that this is simply what she had to do. Yeah. 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 So Jason comes back. Yeah. After all of this has happened, he comes back. He's ranting at the chorus. He's screaming at the nurse. He's yeah. like, where is she? Yeah. Where is she? Give me my sons. Because he doesn't yeah. know what she's yeah. done yet. Yeah. He's like, all he knows he is He just so knows far, that. Glauke. Yes. And Creon. <laughs> and Creon are dead. Dead. And they start to imply that he shouldn't go into the... Cause, yeah, cause, don't go in. And he's like, why? Because she's killed herself? Well, fucking great. So yeah. she should have. So he sort of suspects that she's killed herself because of all of this talk mm. of revenge. But th- he doesn't expect what's going to happen next. Yeah. No one does. No. Because normally at this stage, and again, as you were saying before, Liv, as well, with the reveal here that happens, Euripides the rebel does something very different, is that normally what would happen in a play at this point is we'd have a trolley from the house, would because this was quite often what you did to show an indoor scene, was a trolley would basically come out with the bodies draped mm. across the trolley and we'd see what had happened inside the house is these murdered children. And so the audience would have been expecting that trolley to come from inside the house. This is what our Athenian audience is sitting there being like, fuck, the trolley's going to come. Those kids are going to be on the trolley. But we don't get the fucking trolley. No. We get the fucking machine. The deus ex machina. We get the golden fucking (laughs) chariot. The dragon chariot. The golden dragon chariot. Rising up. Helios's chariot. Above the scene. Yep. With Medea, Medea in the center, her sons draped on her arms, and she is lifted as a god. 
as a god. Because that's what the machine, which was basically a crane, yeah. that's what it was for. The god of the machine. The <laughs> gods were the only ones who were supposed to sit in this area yeah. of the stage. And she is a demigod. Yes, yes. sure. She but she's she's rarely attributed as one, though. No. She, no. she is, but she's not. She's that's just right. witchy is sort of what she yeah. gets from Helios. Because Helios is technically blood. a titan, too. He is. Yeah. Right, just to go deep. No, no, you're, 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 abs- you're perfectly right. She does have this bloodline from, from Helios, the titan. She does have it, but she is... For all intents and purposes, a mortal woman. She's treated like mm-hmm. a mortal woman. And here she is yeah. in the place of a god. After committing this atrocious act. Mm-hmm. And it's this was in all tragedies too. I think we should emphasize like the gods in the machine as the translation has changed to ghosts in the machine. But yeah, the the gods appearing at the end and like you say, the the bodies being wheeled out. Like all that happens in basically every tragedy Mm -hmm. certainly the gods are in almost every single one just coming in at the end to sort of wrap things up with a nice little bow to give their message and the didactic like your lesson for today children (laughs) and this is the opposite this is her rolling in on a dragon chariot not wrapping anything up just or i mean i suppose in her own way but not in the way that the gods do just like, nope, mm-hmm. here I am. And Jason vilifies her in the way that we would expect, I think, that what you were talking about before, the fact that this woman has done a violent act, this is something we would not expect of a woman. He says, vile woman, the gods, I and all, the human race utterly despise you. You had the audacity to plunge a sword into your children, destroying me childless. Can you look upon the sun and earth after daring this most monstrous deed? Damn you. I see now what I was blind to when I bought you from your barbarian home to a Greek household. An abomination. But he's fucking wrong. Yes. He's so wrong. Because he's still not. He still doesn't. Vic- he doesn't fucking get it. Yeah. Because the gods don't abhor what she's done. No. Hence why they've sent her a fucking chariot (laughs) driven by dragons. It's still his hubris talking, isn't it? It is. It's all, at this moment, is all Jason's hubris. Yeah. This is what it comes down to for him right here. Yeah. Whereas Medea has actually been the one who the gods have. Because she's actually righted his wrong. Yes. It's him who's the villain of the play. Yeah. It's him who is the person we're supposed to be learning the lesson about. The lesson is not, dear women, don't you kill your children as revenge for your husband. The lesson is men don't betray your household. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't betray your Eorcus. Yeah. And this is what's so brilliant about thinking about that audience that's sitting yeah. there in Athens being like, holy shit, <laughs> what the fuck just happened in this play? Yeah. It what? would have just happened blown everybody's fucking minds it would have it genuinely and you know what i think i only won like third place (laughs) that is bullshit so outraged that's bullshit my friend but that's when i want to know what were the other plays yes (laughs) i that's all i can think about all the time like but what else was there like what i mean maybe it was warranted what actually be to anyway i could go on about that forever but how can you top that a dragon chariot yeah on stage in ancient <laughs> greece i mean i think that's 
that alone. And the woman who's the hero at the end, Mm -hmm. despite this violent act, despite all of the transgressions against femininity, really, that she has Mm -hmm. committed Mm -hmm. by being outspoken, by being angry, by not placating her husband and going quietly, and of course, killing her children, despite all of those transgressions, she is the hero of the story still. That's what I think what I love so much about Medea is that she is treated just like any other hero, like a male hero in a tragedy. Yes. She's not vilified at all by Euripides for these actions. Yeah. And I wonder if Euripides would have written the same play if your stock standard wife was allowed to come along and watch it. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) I wonder if he would have been like, Too many ideas. Am I sowing the seed of discontent amongst the, uh, the wives of Athens? I don't know. But, of course, No, because the wives of Athens didn't have recourse to a grandfather who was the son. No. Um, That's a very specific specific type of help. Um, (laughs) But it is an absolute rebel's play and she is this maybe anti-hero is more the term. Yeah, that's a good one. To apply to her. But she does come out the victor in this. She wins. And, of course, we know that what happens to Jason and Medea herself has already prophesied it during the course of the play, is his new wife is gone, so he's not having any kids there. His line of children by Medea are gone. He's friendless, he's childless, he's wifeless. No one wants to marry him Mm. now. He's ruined. So he spends the rest of his days alone, abandoned, forgotten, hated. Yeah. And he goes back to his beloved ship, goes back to the beloved Argo, like with his tail between his legs, and as Medea has foretold, dies there yeah. when one of the rotting beams falls on his head. It's such an unheroic end, it's isn't it? It's the like... most unheroic end because if you're a hero, yeah. Jason's a hero. He's supposed to die in battle. He's got to die in battle. Come back with your shield or on it. Yes, exactly. And here he is dying in the most embarrassing fashion. <laughs> A beam falls on his head on his shitty old ship. Like that is humiliation. (laughs) The one other note that I have in my highlighting here is one of the last things Medea says to Jason is simply go into your house and bury your wife. Mm. As one of like a one liner of like, (laughs) stop bothering me for what I did. Just go inside and bury your wife. And I just love that it's great isn't it it's like yeah yeah fuck off pick up your pieces yeah Yeah, exactly like i'm done with you i've done exactly what i needed to we're done we're finished here i'm out chariot away (laughs) exactly but plays they continue with us and we bring new meaning to them yeah uh, over time and i do think that this play has so much power and relevance today yes I just do. Reading this play now, after reading a bunch of articles about female rage, I was just like, this play is fucking perfect Mm. and I love it. I forgot how much I loved it just rereading it. I was just blown away again. But, of course, we know, like, that's what the best stories do, the best theatre does, is that it tells us something very specific about, you know, quote, unquote, the human condition, Mm. blah, blah, blah. But it really does. And we can always see how it's relevant to us throughout history, how it morphs and changes. How, yes, across different times she's been seen as this insane, mad woman, this monstrous woman, and how perhaps now she's reclaimed in a much different way and perhaps a way that's closer to her original intended meaning. Yeah, I think so. So I don't know if there's anything else that we wanted to sort of 
of say about Medea before we wrap up for this episode? I mean, from a completely uh, selfish point of view, this has just made me want to redo my episode on her. And I mm-hmm. absolutely will be if I haven't already by the time this one comes out. <laughs> but I just, I didn't do her justice in my first episodes and rereading it. Oh my, the story is incredible. And her story, I think, is definitely one of my favorite, but also just one of the most, like we were talking about, she just has the most depth. She has the mm-hmm. most character. She's just a really fully fledged person and I think that's so rare in terms of women in Greek mythology and I couldn't love it more yeah, yeah. well we can't thank you enough for coming on this journey with oh, us um, thank it's been you absolutely wonderful to have you along thank yeah. you oh. so much thank you so much I'm so glad I could be on for the ultimate deviant woman <laughs> special honor <laughs> and where can our audience find you so they can uh, catch up on all of their myths that we sometimes yeah. dive into, but not as often as we probably would like to know. <laughs> well, I do have a lot of them at this point. They can find me, any listener can find me wherever podcasts are found. Again, it's called Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, but you can search for mythology and usually it's there. You don't have to type out the whole thing. So that's nice. And in terms of wherever on the internet, I'm just Myths Baby everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So, you know, people can find me and listen and do anything they want. Ah, what an epic. What an amazing story. Oh, gosh, I loved getting my teeth into that so much. So much epicness. And, of course, it's October. The spookiest time of the month. We've got Halloween on the way. That was pretty good. So if you're interested in being even more deeply disturbed... Join us next fortnight for our Halloween episode. We hope to see you then. And so in the meantime, as always, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review, leave us a rating. They really, really help in actually spreading the word. Just jump on... You're on your phone. You've got your phone out on the episode right now. Just click that five stars. And then when you've done that, go on over and listen to more Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. That's your... That is what you need to do next. Yes. Of course, you can support us for as little as $2 a month on Patreon. That's right. And of course, if you'd like to, you can get pins and t-shirts on Etsy. And thank you, as always, to Brendan Davies for the sound, India Hui for the music, and to Dan, our executive producer. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye!